and I have, uh, have discovered a new book series. It's called The Wing Feather Saga. This is our nighttime ritual these days, reading the Wing Feather Saga. It's written by Andrew Peterson. Maybe you're familiar with Andrew Peterson. He wrote Behold the Lamb, this Christmas album that tours every December. And he's written a series of books for kids. And it's about three siblings that range from ages 8 to 12. They're growing up in a small, somewhat sleepy town. And as you're reading about their story, they begin to discover the, the true nature of their identity. They are royalty as part of a distant kingdom. One is a throne warden, one is the high king, one is the song maiden. And as they start to step into this identity, they realize that we've been living in this secret place in hiding, but we are actually royalty in a distant land. And you watch that as, as the identity gets revealed real time for these little children, start to carry themselves a little bit differently. Because when one day you're a child in the Glipwood Forest and the next you are the throne warden of the great kingdom across the sea. You just feel different. And it's been really fun reading with my boys and seeing as these children emerge and begin to step into their identity and start to feel the tug towards a kingdom that they have never visited. And they realize that understanding the true nature of their identity and the true nature of the story that they're living changes the scene that they're in. You follow me? Like when they realize this is who I actually am and this is the narrative that I'm a part of, then this scene right now all of a sudden feels really different. And as we have been going through this journey of a biblical theology of race, this morning we, we come to the final message in this series. Not to say that we have arrived or finished the conversation that needs to continue, but in this moment we are, we're kind of putting together a... a a conclusion to what do the scriptures have to say about the nature of race. And we are going to look at the climactic scene that was just read for us. The climactic scene that is your identity and mine revealed in the truest, most glorious, most eternal sense. And the invitation this morning is to realize that, that you've known some about your identity but as we become more and more in touch with the true nature of our identity and the true nature of the story that we're living, it alters the way we live in the scene we're in right now. And the news that I have for you is good news today. You are living a really good story if you're in Jesus this morning. Like your identity and the story you're a part of is stunning. Now the invitation is for us to live it to actually live out the story that we are a part of if we are in Jesus. And so this morning, what I want to do is very simple. By, by looking at this climactic scene, I want to ask the question, who are we really? What is our identity? And then after identifying who we are, I want to talk about what is it that we are doing and how do we go about doing it? As we understand these contours, we will understand the nature of the story that we're living and we will understand how to, as the people of God, live it more fully. Are you with me? So, who are we? Who are we really based off of the climactic picture of the story that we're living that we just read from Revelation 7 verses 9 through 17. And if I were to summarize who you and I are, who we are corporately, our truest and most eternal identity is this. We are member, members of an innumerable global 
diverse family. Our truest identity eternally that gets revealed in the climactic scene is that we are members of an innumerable, diverse, global family. It's who we are. Did you hear it in verses 9 and 10? Look back at the text with me. In in this picture of what is happening in the throne room of Jesus, it says this, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. You see, in this climactic scene, we have a recapturing of what we called in the first week of this sermon series, God's shining dream. God's shining dream from the beginning was that there would be a unified humanity that is bearing his image and declaring his glory and covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. But what's interesting, and what I hope you note here, is that when this innumerable group of every nation, tribe, and tongue is standing before the throne, it's not a recapturing of the garden. It's a redeeming of Babel. You know, the interesting thing is that in Genesis 1, they were all united with a single voice and a single ethnic makeup that here's this family that's starting in this garden, and God's growing a family that is unified in every way. And we said that in in, in Genesis 11, if you recall and you've been with us, that when God frustrated humanity, he divided humanity by creating ethnicity and language, that that was to curb the pride and the ego and the self-devotion of mankind. It was to humble us. It was to recognize that, that it's not all about us. But the beauty is that when he gets to glory, he doesn't go back to the garden. He takes the division and the heartache and the brokenness and he redeems it and he makes it beautiful forever. What he's saying is your very identity is you're part of this thing that he's been doing. Innumerable, global, and diverse. And I hope, I, what I want for you to do is to feel the heart of the Father, both in the number and the makeup of these people. Feel the heart of the Father with me. They cannot be numbered. It's as if God throughout time has been about this redemptive work. He's been calling people to himself through the completed work of Jesus as that gospel is announced all across the globe. And people from different people groups for the first time hear the good news of Jesus. They lean in and they trust their hearts to him. And all of the angels have a party in heaven and they go, God, is now the time? And he goes, I don't know, can you still number them? And they go, yeah, I can count that high. He says, it's not done yet. Like the heart of the Father is going, I'm building a family, and until no one can count that high, it's not done because I'm gathering a family that I'm going to cherish forever. My heart as a father is erupting with greater love that is not fully satisfied just yet until the number is beyond what you can grasp. It is innumerable. The heart of the Father says, wait. Wait for it. In 2 Peter 3 and verse it tells us that God is not slow as some say that he is. Some might say, well, where is your God? Jesus is supposed to be coming back. We've been waiting a while. Where is he? And Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, answers the question for us. He says he's not slow. He's patient. He's patient because he loves his family. And he says, not all of my kids are home yet. They haven't all heard. And until 
it is innumerable. The heart of the Father is not satisfied. Until it's every nation, tribe, and tongue, the heart of the Father is not satisfied. Jesus in Matthew 24, 14 says, how will you know when the end will come? When every ethnic group, when every people group has a representation at the throne room, then I'll come back and not one day sooner. Because God is patient. The heart of the Father is saying, I have such love for the diversity, the complexity, the beauty of humanity. Do you feel the heart of the Father and the climactic picture as he's noting your identity as a member of this innumerable, global, diverse family? Interestingly, all crying out with with one voice. It makes it really clear that here's this innumerable number, but when they are speaking in verse 10, when they're crying out, it says with a loud voice, singular, salvation belongs to God who who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, that though they are diverse in all, uh, all ways, innumerable beyond count, when they speak, they have one voice. And their voice is, He did it all. The only reason we are here is because of what He has done. You see, global, diverse, unified, and innumerable, this is our identity. And I just want to pose this question before we move on. If we were to really lay hold of our identity, what would it do to us? Like, like Janner and Tink and Lily and the wing feather stories, when they start realizing, oh, I'm, I'm royalty. Like, I have authority. I have a calling on my life. It, there's, this, there's this one note where they, they, there's all of these like mythical creatures and scary moments, but after they learn their identity, there's this one moment where the throne warden who's supposed to protect the people in the kingdom, especially the king, and you, you get a little picture into his thoughts, and in this really terrifying moment, he says, well, what would a throne warden do in a moment like this? He would be brave. Though I don't feel brave, this is who I am, and this is what I would do. And there's a moment where if we really were to answer the question, okay, your truest identity is a member of an innumerable, diverse global family, so much so that 10 million years from now, like a fading dream, you will try to remember when you weren't experiencing it only and always. Like you will try to draw back on some memory when you weren't united with the whole of the diversity and the beauty of humanity. And you'll struggle to remember because it will be so truly your identity forever. You'll go, I, I, I can't remember when I was divided or separated from people that weren't just like me. And so if that's truly our identity, what would it do? A couple of thoughts. One question that I've gotten along the way, especially in this series, is does this mean that every church should be multi-ethnic? That's an interesting question. I think in some ways the answer is yes and no. Because there, there are many nuances to that question. Yes, in the sense that the church is multi-ethnic and we should strive towards it. We should pray for it. We should labor to look like the neighborhood we're in. We should represent the people of God in a geographical area. Some churches in a geographical area where if they perfectly represented where they had been planted, they wouldn't be multi-ethnic. It's part of the reality of the world in which we live. So we've got to be careful not to layer something that is so heavy over every church. But at the same time, the, the point at which we grow comfortable not continuing to grow more and more diverse, looking more and more like who we are, that's a problem. So we will never fully arrive until we are at the throne room of Jesus. And there are limitations quite 
quite frankly, for a church like Seven Mile Road, planted on the edge of River Oaks with a guy that looks like me, there are some recognitions and some limitations. But at the same point, that doesn't mean that we don't keep praying and longing and raising up leaders and dreaming for God's vision for who we are as a people. But, but even maybe more pointedly, What's our call as individuals? How would we respond individually if this is who we are? Now, I want to be real clear. I I think all of us have different callings, particularly as it relates to this. But underneath and through it all, we have a calling to be who we are. To like live it out. So my first word of encouragement to you about personally walking out God's identity in your life is to talk to the Holy Spirit about it. To ask him if this is who I am and this is your shining dream for the world and you've put me right here incidentally in the most diverse city in America. What would it look like for me tomorrow to wake up and go, well, I don't know if this is who I am. What would it look like for me to live it out? And I believe that the Holy Spirit will have different answers for different people in this community. And I started this series by saying, I'm not asking everyone to agree with me about everything on this. All I'm saying is, let's do good theology. Let's stack our hands there. And then in response to the Holy Spirit, carry it out. Now, at risk of playing junior Holy Spirit for just a moment, let me throw out a few ideas that maybe he will breathe life into as you pray about it. One, Perhaps you would have a meal a month with someone from a different ethnic background than you. Hopefully, when, as we continue to make it through COVID, that would happen around your dinner table. But maybe between now and then, it's an outdoor cafe or something like that. But the, the, the realization of welcoming people into your home that have a very different background than you and then taking the posture of listening and loving and understanding the person that's right in front of you. Perhaps, perhaps it would be the education of your kids. This was a realization in our family when, when all of a sudden we had a, a nephew that had been adopted into our family that was black. And then we had another nephew that was adopted that was biracial and realizing that there was a hole in the discipleship of our children because we had not been talking as frankly about these realities in such a way that when we were together as a family, there was a real learning curve. And Ashley and I had to realize that we weren't intentionally being bigoted. We weren't trying to be foolish. We just weren't actively living out our identity in the way that we were discipling our children. And so we started talking more about it. We were reading books about our history. That We've got to be careful that on the time horizon of how we are a people that are a part of the solution, which incidentally we are God's solution because we are the church, that our time horizon can't be the first quarter of next year or or next fall. it, It has to be like a time horizon where we're willing to do hard, good work that generationally things continue to be renewed by the presence of God in the community of faith. How are you discipling and raising up your kids to think about these issues? Have books in your home with heroes and protagonists that look different than you, with pictures that the kids look at and go, oh, I've never seen people in stories like this with culture like this. Eliminate racist jokes. I wish it didn't have to be said, but I think it does. Talking with friends even this last week that have said, you know, I'm with my group of friends and things get said that if other people were present, I would cringe. Don't be silent and don't laugh. It's not funny. 
We don't want to be complicit with these sorts of things. We want to be salt and light that graciously says, you know what, I don't think that's funny. And I'd prefer that you not talk like that when I'm around. You see, we want to raise the bar in the way that we think about these things. And I would also encourage you, if you have a growing passion about this, you might want to connect with one of our sister churches that we are deeply connected in the city through a church planning network that is planning churches of every stripe and color and language. I love getting to be on the board of this organization and train these planters and love them and pray for their wives and their kids and bring them in to stand in our pulpit, which they do with some regularity. We give money to them and we support them and we're linking arms with them. And if you want to know those communities and serve them, I encourage you, come and do that. We've helped people connect. There have been people from within Seven Mile Road that started to go, and they realized, I'm passionate about this. I love taking leadership cues from a person of color, and I want to be in a community like this, and we've sent them. They no longer worship with us, and I rejoice each time that happens because I am not convinced that everybody needs to be here. And if you're being called to something like that, let us connect you. We are one church in this city. There is only one church in the city, and we are going to live open-handed and arms-linked to see the kingdom of God come in Houston as it is in heaven. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's calling you to, but I do know what your identity is. And it's a member of an innumerable, global, diverse family. Let's live like it. That's who we are. So what is it that we're doing what is it that we're doing ultimately, globally? What are we doing in this climactic scene? Oh, go there with me, because this is, it's just almost too good for a soul to contain. Look at verse 11 and 12 with me. It says this. It says, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. What is happening in this throne room? You and I, as members of the innumerable global diverse family of God, are increasing cosmic awe. So angels are very active throughout the book of Revelation. 76 times angels are mentioned in the book of Revelation. 76 times. There's only one time in the whole book of Revelation where all of the angels are together. And there is only one time where they're on their face. And it's here. Because when the angels show up, like, like just go here with me for a second. When angels show up, do you know what the first thing they usually say is? Don't be afraid. The reason is because everyone's afraid when they show up. They're quaking and they're nervous. John the Revelator, the one who's actually writing this, who's been getting to see all of this happen, falls down at the face of an angel trying to worship him near the end of the book. And the angel says, get up. I'm worshiping alongside of you. When angels show up, humanity falls down. But here, in this singular moment, it's the only place where we see all of the angels together, myriads upon myriads upon myriads of these glorious creatures that strike fear into the heart of mankind. But in this moment, all of them fall flat on their face. Why? Why? They have been watching since the beginning of creation 
First Peter 1.12, I think, I think we've got this slide for you. In First Peter 1.12, it says this, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, this was the prophets, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who've been, who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then Peter tacks on this little phrase at the end. Do you see it? Even angels long to look into these things. The angels who are in the presence of God worshiping since the created order was initiated have been watching as the prophets are writing and the scriptures are being revealed and they're going, what is God doing? It's a mess with these people. He's like really invested in these people that live on earth and we're his messengers running back and forth working on things and then the birth of Jesus, what the angels must have been doing, such a flurry of activity as they're singing and announcing to shepherds, and I think they're elbowing one another, going, get a load of this. He's really serious about these people, and they're a mess. They hate one another, and they oppress each other, and they rape, and they kill, and they go to war. Why is he so invested here? They can't get along, and they continue to watch, and they watch them wound and kill the Savior that they have worshipped for all time, and they go, what is going on? They're craning their necks going, what is God up to? And these angels who have had unmitigated access to the presence and the glory of God for millennia upon millennia, when they finally see a global, diverse, innumerable family calling out salvation as his, they go, oh, is that a, is that a Tutsi and a Hutu together praising Jesus? And is that a German and a Jew? And is that a Cambodian with Vietnamese and Chinese? And is that an Afrikaner and a South African black? And is that, a, is that a black and a white American? And are they all together loving one another like family, saying salvation is his? And the angels all fall over and they said, we had no idea. Like, we have seen the glory of God for thousands of years, but when we see you, we're stunned. Do you see in Ephesians 3 and verse 9 and 10, we're actually told, we are told that the manifold wisdom of God is displayed by the church to the spiritual authorities and powers. That the manifold wisdom of God is shown in the church that we actually announce something to the angels that they can't see by looking directly at God. Let me say it like this. Our diversity is like a telescope that allows us to finally draw into focus what has always been glorious and stunning. The full nature of God's glory comes into focus by our diversity. And when we don't actively cherish it and pursue it and love it and prioritize it, we're robbing ourselves. We're robbing what causes angels to fall on their face. And we just think, well, you know, I, does that fit in my life? It's, it's not my calling. And, and God's going, I know, but you're losing out. Like the fullness of my glory is only displayed by all of the difference. And as you humble yourself and slow down and listen and love, you will experience more of my glory, the sorts that will cause the angels to crumble. You see, what are we doing? We're actually increasing cosmic awe. We're expanding the vision of God's glory by being knit together into this family. Well, lastly... How do we do it? How do we do it according to this climactic scene? If this is our identity, and this is the activity we're participating in by being the church, how do we go about it? Let us not be confused. It is so clear in this text 
who is central and who is making this happen. Picking up in verse 13, it says this, one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know, And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation that have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. As as he's setting it up, it's this interesting moment where the elder comes to John as John's watching it all, and he asks him a question that he obviously knows the answer to. So why is the elder coming along to John? Like John's watching all of this unfold, and he's scrawling notes, and the elder walks over and elbows him, and he's like, so who are the people in white? Well, John's like, Sir, you know. Why is the elder doing this? He's making sure that John doesn't miss miss the punchline. He already has the answer. He's not asking for lack of information. He's asking for emphasis. John, write this part down. The ones in white are the ones who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. That's who they are. You see, he's starting to say, make sure that you don't miss this reality, that they are the ones that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, because this ultimately, this scene is all about the Lamb. It's not about these people and the way that they, they strived to, to accomplish something, that they were so good and gracious and wise, and they reordered all of the right systems to accomplish something. They see the Lamb as central, and this is what they see. A few things that the Lamb accomplishes that makes this possible, that nothing else could. What we see as they start to to speak, in verse 14, we heard it, that they were washed in the blood of the Lamb. The first thing is that the Lamb scrubs us clean. The reason this is only possible through the Lamb is that we all smuggle in our sin. And as it relates to this snapshot of who we are, our own bigotry and division and bitterness and anger, some of it that we know to say and some of it we don't, some of it's just been the air that we breathe, we all smuggle it in in different ways. But the truth is, we're not going to work our way out of that. We need to be scrubbed by the blood of the Lamb. He scrubs us and he makes us clean. The second thing is that he shelters and satisfies us in verse 15 and 16. Look at this. Therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. That after he has made them clean, after he has made us clean, he gathers us and he says, I will actually protect you in such a way that no longer will you be hungry or thirsty or under the scorching sun. You see, he shelters and he satisfies us. I am so grateful that brothers and sisters of mine who labored as slaves on this soil went to bed at night, those who had come to trust in Jesus with these promises saying, one day, I will not be exposed to the scorching heat. One day my king will come and he will shelter me. I am thankful that we serve a king that says, this is the work that I do. I will scrub you clean. I will shelter you. You will not be exposed to the burning sun or to the oppression anymore. And then he shepherds us to perpetual fulfillment in verse 17a. Do you see it there? For the lamb is in the midst of the throne and he will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. They will never thirst again, constantly refreshed and renewed because the the one who is at the center is leading them to be refreshed over and over again. And then in 17b, he secures them. They will never weep again. God will wipe away every tear from the eyes. No more sadness, no more division, no more heartache, no more bigotry, no more longing, just 
fulfillment and joy. You see, the lamb is at the center of the throne, able to scrub and shelter and shepherd and to secure. It's the work that he's doing. And he had to do it all at great cost to himself. Like if we're asking, if we're asking how we go about this, we meditate on the work of the lamb because he just did all of those things and he did them at great cost to himself. He scrubbed us clean because he was made to be sin. The one who was pure actually had sin so infest the system, it was poured out on him in a way that it became his identity so that it no longer had to be yours. And he shelters and tends to us so that we're not exposed to the heat. And he did that by being so exposed that he was stripped naked and mocked and spat upon, totally vulnerable, totally exposed. And then he says, I'll lead you to living water forevermore. This from the one who in the moments of his languishing said, I thirst, I am laid low. There is no living water for me. All there is is death. And in that moment, he wept. He groaned. He called out to the Father and he was not secure. The Father turned his face away at great cost to himself. The Lamb secured all that you need to be who you've been called to be. Your story is a good story. Like, run to Jesus. If you've never trusted him, listen, your story is tragic without Jesus. Your story, I assure you, is a tragedy without Jesus because one day you will stand and if he hasn't scrubbed and sheltered and secured and shepherded, you will be exposed in all of your sin and brokenness. Come to Jesus. And when you come to him, when you see the suffering one and you come to love and cherish him, realize this, you have a new identity, a new calling. You have a new story. Let's live it. Let's live as the innumerable, global, diverse family that's increasing cosmic awe as we celebrate the glory of the Lamb. Let's live our story together. Let me pray. Oh, God. rejoice in the heart of the Father together. When we were lost and wandering and uninterested in what you had for us, you came for us and you set your affection on us at great cost to yourself and at great cost to your son. You came for us. And you came for us so that we could see you in all of your beauty and have our souls satisfied. And God, we recognize as we sit under the word that if we live in little silos of, of likeness and sameness, we rob ourselves of visions of your glory. And that's why we exist. Please, God, help us not to rob ourselves. Help us not to miss what you're doing as we respond to the lamb in all of his glory. Thank you for securing for us a good story. Help us to live it. Whew. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's in his name and it's for his glory that we pray. Amen.